This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. Uh, it is Monday the 11th. It is 5 p.m. in the city of London. I'm Guy Johnson. Alex Steele is over in New York. Alex, let's just talk a little bit about the price action. U.S. equity markets started to get into gear a little bit, actually, albeit on light volumes. The FTSE 100 actually spiking during the auction. Uh, the last five minutes of trading up by 7 tenths of 1%. Continental markets quiet today. It is Columbus Day, so bond markets shut your side of the pond. Uh, but what we have seen uh, is quite a lot of speculation about whether the Bank of England will be hiking rates. That's been moving the market around a little bit. But the real story in many ways in the commodity space, crude up sharply, WTI up by 2.5%. Iron ore also bouncing back, though fading a little bit later. But nevertheless, commodities seem to be driving the story. Yep. Also, everyone here is talking about Southwest. Um, the flyers are mad. They're canceling flights. They're not rescheduling them. It's a lot of drama. That's not getting hit to, um, especially on a travel date like a Columbus date. Let's get some other updates and stories for you. Here is Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Happy Monday to you both. UK power prices rose after a coal power plant switched today to make up for a shortfall in wind generation and limited flows on two power cables to Ireland. Britain is set to end the use of coal within three years and to make power generation fossil fuel free by 2035. For now, the nation is still reliant on coal when the wind drops or demand increases, and this winter is set to be even tighter than grid operator National Grid expected. AstraZeneca shares up 1.3% today in London. Its antibody cocktail was effective at preventing mild or moderate COVID-19 infections from worsening in a study that bolsters the drugmaker's ambitions for the product. Astra said the cocktail cut in half the risk of severe illness or death compared with a placebo in 822 patients who had been symptomatic for a week or less and were not hospitalized. The British export No Time to Die. The newest James Bond movie opened as the number one film in North American theaters this week. Also did very well in the United Kingdom. Eric Lomas, president of distribution at United Artists Releasing, said that while the weekend gross for the new Bond film fell short of some estimates, it signals a return of older audiences to theaters. He said, quote, this is the first real movie that was served up for the adult audience in quite some time. He added that the company did a survey that found that No Time to Die was the first movie seen in theaters since the pandemic by 25% of the audience. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. And Guy and I, we are part of that audience. He went, I went. It was very exciting. Um, there's also talk in the studio right now about Guy becoming the next James Bond. Lots more to discuss uh, on that point. Uh, Matt Miller suggested this. Let me be clear. I didn't suggest this. He would never, definitely not but do that. But I no. would, if asked, obviously, one would. Serve your one country. Would serve one's country. Yeah. And uh, if I'm going to do it, Matt Miller has to be Felix. Right, right. That's, That's my only, these, these are the caveats. Yeah. I did the riders if we were to do this. Fair enough, fair enough. I won't take that personally. That's fine. That's fine. Um, anyway... Back to the market action. Um, okay, so the big news for me is that we got this uh, move in, in the the gilt market. I feel like I've been saying this for a while that it's all your fault that like you guys are leading the the rise higher in gilts, and we're kind of following and that's sort of disrupting all the market. Um, and so let's get someone smarter get, uh, outlook there. Marcus Ashworth, a Bloomberg opinion. I was say, who's he that? Is, 
back. He is here. Marcus, we have missed you. How are you? I'm a little better, thanks. I'm fine. Yeah. I mean, my Lord, someone smart. I must be scraping the barrel here. But I'm here. We are so happy for that. Yeah. Well, yes. We're very happy that you're, you're, you're back in one piece. I, we, I look forward to, to, to you, you representing in yourself in the office. Um, uh, you won't be seeing that for a week or so. You know, it's scary, those trains, you know. <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> All those guys like Guy Johnson on there. Um, well, he, surprisingly, people are not wearing masks, which, which they don't have to, but... But it's getting uh, there was a little it's bit of bananas. a little bit of acrimony on the train the other night about really? the lack of mask wearing. Ooh. Yeah, like people like someone was like wear a mask and they're like, no, I hate you. Or how'd that go? No, no, the guy the, the guy was having a go saying to the, to the guard, you need to make sure that everybody's wearing a mask on this train. You could mm. at least put out a notice saying it would be a good idea. Anyway, I'm just pointing this out for Marcus's sake. Um, so Marcus, uh, Bank of England rate hike, any chance? Oh, sadly, I think there is, and I'm 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 currently writing at the moment as as to how blindsided the the Bank of England has got itself, and uh, it, it runs a risk of overreacting um, more through the fact that they've been too relaxed and, and in stimulus mode for too long, and not got themselves to the right side of the ship um, quickly enough, and then it runs a risk of sort of a, a big lurch. Um, so there is a chance that um, they do hike in November. I, I think they probably will say they're going to think about hiking soon and will be doing it in the next one or two meetings. But you know, logically, there, there, there are quarterly monetary policy reviews, and the next one is November, um, and then followed by February. I think they may feel February is too late. So they may say in November, okay, we're going to do it in December or something like that, which is not an official meeting of, of, well, of, of the full economic forecast. But it's it's definitely the, the body language has changed. Marcus, I feel like they're in the middle of a rock and a hard place. Because on the one hand, if they right. don't do it, then they're losing credibility because they've been talking it up. But if they do do it, it feels like the market is leading the BOE by repricing the rate hike so aggressively. Well, they have let the, 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 the government market, bond market, you know, move very far too sharply for a major bond market to be, you know, it, it's doubled in yield in the last sort of six weeks. That isn't healthy under anyone's circumstances. I, I think they've, they've really not handled this at all well. And they've left a lot of money market institutions, you know, with no, no other alternatives that hedge themselves very, very quickly on their interest rate book. And that's, that's the trouble. The first rate hike or the first move in any interest rate cycle is by far the most important. It must be taken very carefully because by definition you move from all of a sudden you know cutting rates for the last 10 years to actually hiking rates everyone has to presume there might be more than one and how many will there be and they have to hedge their forward curve exposure and that is what's happened here very very brutally in the gilt market and you know it's out underperformed therefore yep. you know risen yield much more sharply than in the rest of the world and it's down to a poor communication i'm sorry to say for the bank of england and mm. under bailey you had great hopes for you know, they haven't had a proper press conference since, since COVID, you know, started. They have confused us all and wasted all our time unmeasurably with negative rates and changing the entire banking system to be able to cope with negative rates, which is simply never going to happen. And they've been focusing on that. Well, look what's happened. Inflation has caught them by surprise. And now all of a sudden they are, will be the first but, major but, central banks to hike. 
We, we don't have an all labour market data, so I'm curious as to why they're thinking what they're thinking. We don't know yet what the impacts of furlough rolling off is going to be. Yes, we've got inflation spiking higher, but Marcus, it's the wrong kind of inflation, isn't it? This is all cost pushing inflation. Kind of inflation, as I'm saying. And, I mean, and we, I, in, some, in some ways, you could argue that the Bank of England could almost be leading the other way. This is a tax on UK growth. And you start raising rates in this environment, that growth could be severely knocked off course. Well, you know, you've got the combination of we've had fast monetary and fiscal stimulus, the first time ever we've ever seen governments coordinate to properly um, lift the economy. And what's the Bank of England about to do? About, and the government, to be fair, is about to combine in the worst, op- exact opposite direction. You know, only, you know, they're still adding and buying QE, by the way. Yeah. They're still in stimulus the, mode. They're you doing exactly the opposite of other banks. Yeah. They might hike before it, they it, pair back. It's, well, it's not so much that. That's, that it's just not coordinated. They are, they are still undergoing a pandemic stimulus you know, QE program whilst they're talking about hiking interest rates. That's not a good place to be. That, they, they've got this badly wrong. And it just needs to be calmly handled. Look, we, and I understand. Them. Look, I, personally, I think they shouldn't have been doing QE at, at any stage by this year, but you know, they should have stopped ages ago. But they've got themselves in a bit of a dilemma. They need to elegantly get out of it by timetabling it and saying that we are going to do this, yep. but calm down, we're not going to do any more than X, i.e. We'll, they'll get to 50 basis points, say, at some point in early next year or, or later next year. But they, they need to give the markets a little bit of a clarity here rather than uh, causing an all, all-round stampede, which is what's happened. Marcus, stick around. Now we've got you. We're not going to let you go. Marcus will be rejoining us in just a moment. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. Ten past five. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. We've already talked about one potential threat to the UK economy. That is the prospect of rising rates. Let's talk now about another industrial activity being suppressed as a result of high energy costs. What should the government be doing next? How can industry cope with what is happening here? Marcus Ashworth still on the line. Marcus, let's talk a little bit about what is going on. We've got super high gas prices. That's now being followed up uh, by oil prices going sharply higher as well. Uh, We're tracking towards potentially 90 on Brent gas prices. We all know what has happened there. Industry is starting to get to the point where it can no longer function. Um, can no longer function economically. What should the government? What should the government be doing about this? There was a huge debate over the weekend between the the uh, energy secretary Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, uh, and the treasury. Kwasi Kwarteng saying the government needs to step in and help. Should it? <clears throat> okay. Um, uh, well, Kwasi seems to have won that one because Boris, from his sun lounger in Marbella club. Um, has seemed to, after 24 hours of delay, seems to have backed rightly, I think, in this circumstance as the business secretary, because there's some very strange messages coming out to business at the moment, and I think the government needs to, you know, clarify its business case. The answer is, in certain circumstances, as with fertilizer, with CO2 gas, with a variety of other certain circumstances, there needs to be some assistance. What the government and the Treasury in particular is trying to avoid is a wholesale pile-on, a bit like the furlough scheme, everyone gets bailed out. And I think they're right not to bail out energy companies. The, the cap system is, you can't change the entire system the way we have it in the UK. Actually, it's worked very well for the consumer. It may not work currently very well for the providers, but that's the risk that they 
sort of take, and I think the big ones are, are plenty uh, able to withstand it. I think that's what the Treasury is coming from. There is, there is no need to all of a sudden a wholesale bailout. There needs to be specific support for, for micro companies in certain circumstances. I think if the government can piecemeal that without sending out a broad brush message, panic, everyone rush here to go and get help, then I think they'll, they, they will be able to handle it. But the, the moment is obviously the media is heavily against them and picking up on every small slight, uh, um, obviously there's so many, um, you know, mis- imbalances and they need to get their act together a little bit more consistently. So it would be yeah. nice to see the two big departments the same song sheet. But, but even when, I think we talked about this was last week, the Tory party conference, that it just, it felt a little tone deaf. It was like a rah-rah thing when, you know, this was when Guy had to wait 45 minutes to fill up his tank and bought a generator. Right? Oh. That was last week? Week before? It yeah. all blurs. Time well, has the generator to arrives today, today, but yeah. Oh, excellent. Um, well, look, yeah, it's easy to be flippant about these things and say, look, they're all passed over and they're supply-side shocks. You know, this is a little bit more serious than perhaps, you know, anyone expected. And it's, it's been exacerbated by a combination of, you know, China sucking as much as they can out of uh, the world gas and coal markets and then, and then you know, a, a, a supply problems, perhaps, we say, coming from Russia. And, and you know, just, just the overall, uh, you know, necessity for consumers to, to, to secure up their, uh, their supply. And that's, that's caused uh, you know, a lot of very difficult things all happening at once. And I think that there is an, uh, a need to move through this and pass this, and it can be done with a little bit more consistency from the government. But they are getting there. It's just maybe not as quick as some of our more demanding media colleagues uh, want. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm assuming I'm not, not in that group. How would you handicap a recession in the UK in the next 24 months? How do we want so? How would you handicap a recession in the UK in the next 24 months? As in, what do I think the chances of being one? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's. I'm going to continue to be fairly constructive, and I think things. Most of these things will all work their way out, hmm. and I think growth is actually set very fair for this year and next. Moving into 2023, uh, will we get a cycle within a cycle? Yes. Will that turn into a technical recession? I think almost certainly no. Uh, you know, bar, you know, look, you know, the credit impulse slowdown in China turning into a, into yeah. something very serious, or indeed, you know, I think you know, oil at eighty ninety is not a problem. We've got to even to one hundred and fifty in the world. Yeah. The world survives. So, but you know, it's the Marcus. speed of any drop. We got to leave it there, guy. You're just not going to get someone to say there's a recession. You're just beating this drum. No, on I just your own I, right the Bank now. of England, everything coming together. I'm I just, just worry about the risks. No, I appreciate right. it. Yeah. Thanks, Marcus. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. There's a short-term and a medium-term story here. You're in the short term, uh, the metals prices, like many of the commodities, are being impacted by a number of transient factors. Uh, you have energy, you have logistics, uh, you have short-term supply disruption. Uh, and I think a lot of the price movements we've, we've been seeing up and down are a consequence of that. But, but it's also undeniable that if we look at where we came from, from, uh, from the, the depths of the pandemic, there has been this this very you know, this longer term trend, and I think exactly as you say, that is driven by the longer term supply story, i.e., that it's hard to bring new supply online, and the demand side, particularly uh, the green revolution and the need for these metals in a more electric society. That was Matt Chamberlain, uh, he's CEO of the London Metal Exchange. 
couple things happening. One, you got these high metal prices, aluminum at a 13-year high. Two, um, they're launching a digital uh, green aluminum contract, basically. Uh, they're trying to be able to green the supply chain uh, for certain big industrial buyers. That was also interesting. And three, it's LME week, which you guys know. You're in London. That's like party central. It's calmed down the last couple of, Well, it hasn't been here the last couple of years, but it's calmed down a little bit before that. Got heat for spending too much money. But still... It's a crazy party time. Uh, Eddie Vandervault uh, of Bloomberg Markets Live, he joins us now. Are you going to any of these LME parties, Eddie? You know, I'm not. It's like the first year ever. And honestly, I feel extremely left out because obviously I don't cover the metals front line anymore. So I've, I've, had, to, I've had to give up some of the, um, some of the, uh, some of the, the fun to my, to my colleagues. But here's the thing, right? I think the, the metals traders and the metals, uh, the miners and so on, they are, they are back in the money again. So whether or not COVID has is, is, is forced them to scale back the parties a little bit, I don't know. But certainly the money's back in the industry. They should be happy. What do you make of the price rises? Hey, aluminium sheeting higher, iron ores turning around. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, we're seeing a lot of metals that I wouldn't have traditionally thought would be rallying at this point, particularly given that we are really talking about the greening of the world economy. That's really a copper trade that I would get excited about, a little bit about aluminium as well. But, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of the um, sort of... Uh, Commodities that you would you would think of the of, of of the legacy economy that are doing extremely well, things like oil, things like coal, even oh, yeah. you know, and and all of this is because we are seeing this you know supply chain train disruption. It's almost it's almost it's almost the, the a reaction to the fact that we are we are we are rebalancing our economies, you know, towards electricity because that makes our energy supply more expensive. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that has the upshot that it that it's supporting in the near term coal prices and oil prices and, and therefore uh, also aluminium and so on. Uh, so there's a couple of ways to think about it. And one is that that's going to continue because the demand short term is there. Just look at some of the curves that we see. The other and, and Citigroup is taking this tack is that they're a little short term bearish on, say, copper, but longer term. OK, because it's going to be fed through the energy transition, et cetera, et cetera. There's not enough supply. But they were just like a little bit over our skis here. What are you hearing? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think this this is this is a, a short term move in a longer term, you know, strategic shift away to that uh, that green uh, greener economy, de- decarbonized world. I think all of those things are true. I think the short term is a reaction, and it doesn't mean that it's going to go away. Uh, you know, even even over the next few months, because. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things at play here. We're talking about central banks raising rates because they want to bring inflation um, to heel. Well, you know, they can raise rates almost as much as they like. That's not going to affect how much uh, natural gas there is in storage in Europe, right? These these, these things are just not going to respe- respond um, to that kind of policy. So it's a really difficult conundrum for central bankers in the world economy right now. Evergrande seems to have gone a little quiet over the last few days, but I was thinking about oh, it over the weekend. I was so glad. I'm so glad you bring that up, oh, Guy, because the last time I was on here, Alex and me talked about this, and you asked us what is more important: is it Evergrande or is it uh, is it commodity prices? And I think we can now conclusively say that you know, so far, commodity prices have had a greater impact um, than okay. anything emanating out of. China. Well, let me draw that line back again. If we mm-hmm. are going to, if we see a massive slowdown in the Chinese mm. property sector. I'm assuming that's going to have a fairly significant impact on the copper price, the aluminium price, 
the steel price. Oh, it definitely will. It definitely will. Is but that, I, I think, I, uh, how I think much that, of that is already in the price? Because it, it, prices are going up, not down. Yeah, so prices of some commodities are going up. I mean, copper is, copper is really underperforming where you would think it should be given how much, how, how strong sentiment is towards it. Um, you know, this year so far, it's just completely underperformed. Um, but, but no, I don't think a complete China slowdown has been priced in. Um, but you know what? The China story for me is the old super cycle in commodities. And it is China is still very important for commodities. But we are talking about a new super cycle. The cycle that we are talking about is about electrifying our economies. And that will benefit in the long term things like copper and so on. And it's hard not to be bullish about those commodities mm-hmm. with a long enough time frame. So, to, to bring it back to the LME before we close this out, um, how do we know yet how much end users are willing to pay for a green premium? Because that's one of the things I think this digital asset with the, the green aluminum is going to tell us. What are you hearing? Yeah. yeah look, we we are seeing we there, there are they are. Clear, there's clear signs that they are willing to pay more, right? We are seeing bonds that are tr- that that have the exact same risk profile, uh, the the exact same duration, where the green bond, the one that just carries the green moniker, will will trade at a at a premium to the one that 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 doesn't, you know, that 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 is a normal bond. We know this. The premium isn't excessively large, but the fact that it exists just tells me that that investors are are willing to say listen i'm willing to take a little bit less money and you know and i'm doing that for this reason for this feel good reason at the end of the day that's not really something that traditional economics tells us should be happening in markets investors should be completely rational but clearly there is something else at play here and there is a premium you know just how large it is every investor will have to decide for themselves and we'll see we'll see you know with with this uh, initiative as well Eddie, always a pleasure. Glad we got it all in. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Eddie van der Vols. Um, not invited to the parties, but certainly that hurts. That, that, invited that hurts. on The Cable Show, wherever he wants. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, London. Happy Monday. You got through it. 5.30 where you guys are. It is 12.30 here in the U.S. Very quiet market action day. Volume pretty light on the major indices. Uh, but the cyclicals like financials and energy and materials, they're all leading the way higher. You got oil at around well over 80 at this point. Uh, Freeport, the second best performing stock within the S&P. And then you got a lot of the oil services also uh, in there as well. Um, the bond market is closed here. But in the futures market, so you look at the 10-year futures, a TYA is is your ticker. Uh, a touch of selling happening. No surprise there as you're seeing bonds move, uh, yields move higher uh, over in Europe. So it feels like this is a pause and we'll see where we wind up ending up this week because there's like a million Fed speakers. So there is potentially a lot of risk uh, to be had in the market. In the meantime, let's get some stories for you. Here's Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Two Bank of England officials have moved to reinforce signals of an imminent rise in UK interest rates to curb inflation, with one telling households to brace for, quote, a significant earlier increase than previously thought. 
Michael Saunders, one of the most hawkish members of the Monetary Policy Committee, suggested in remarks published over the weekend that investors were right to bring forward bets on rate hikes hours earlier. Governor Andrew Bailey warned of a potentially, quote, very damaging period of inflation unless policymakers take action. Ministers, meanwhile, are concerned that a lack of pilots could impede a rebound in flights to pre-pandemic levels. That, according to a report in The Telegraph, the newspaper reports that at least double the usual number of pilots retired during the time when most travel was banned. UK capacity surpassed Germany and France in August after lagging for many months, though it is still 45 percent less than two years ago. Bitcoin has climbed above $57,000 for the first time since May as speculators bet that the largest cryptocurrency will retest the record highs reached earlier this year. J.P. Morgan uh, CEO Jamie Dimon says cryptocurrencies are going to be regulated as anxiety around stable coins and the asset class more broadly has been growing in Washington. Now, speaking at the Institute of International Finance annual meeting, Dimon said, quote, I personally think Bitcoin is worthless, but he said our clients are adults. They disagree. So that what's, uh, that is what makes markets. He says if they want to have access to buy Bitcoin, we can't custody it, but we can give them legitimate, as clean as possible access. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Thanks so much, Charlie. I appreciate it. This is why you like to have Jamie Dimon still as the CEO of JP Morgan, because he says stuff like that. I personally think Bitcoin is worthless when I feel like the whole world is turning the tide uh, with that. But this is why you love the guy. He's, he's also been down on the bond market for a long time. Oh, yeah, I, totally. He's been kind of pretty clear on that. Ultimately, it's it's come to him, but it's taken a long time for that to happen. Yeah, okay. uh, I think he's speaking at the the IIF event, but we've got earnings from JPM. God, is it Wednesday or you Thursday? You just totally stole my segue. Did you know I was going there? Uh, no, but no, it seemed like it. the obvious place to go. We are obviously at one mind now. Yeah, mind meld. Um, does that mean I get to be James Bond too, like in a weird way? He can be 007. Um, okay. Anyway, back to relevant things. Um, so, yes, J.P. Morgan reports on Wednesday, um, and I feel like they've been the gold standard for so for the last few quarters. Uh, and I think yeah. it's going to be this, this this quarter feels about loan demand. Would, would you agree with that one? Uh, I think so. We were listening to Betsy Grasick talking about this last week. She said actually she thought that um, this wouldn't be the quarter about loan demand. She thinks oh. that maybe it was going to pick up next quarter. Um, and that would be something that we would start to see then. But I think loan demand is going to be an interesting story to watch, just from a kind of just get an idea of what's happening with the economy. So this is more like the pre-inflection point, uh, like setting the stage, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I can. See I think that. expectations are quite high for the banks, which, which I think is concerning. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see whether or not actually they are delivered upon, because they've had a they've. They've had a really good run for quite oh, a while. Yeah. You had the there was you had trading activity booming. Uh, you also had investment banking revenue fees booming, um, and now like the third leg of that is going to be when they're going to see the loan demand and actually start making money on loans as the curve steepens here. Yep, and uh, net interest income obviously, mm-hmm. as as you say, as the curve changes, the the danger has to be that this inflation is transitory. And that the, the yields come down, yeah. The, mm-hmm. yeah, and as a result of which, but actually a lot of these guys are moving to revenue-based models anyway. So in theory, that should be okay. But the the banks kind of are interesting because in in some ways, 
you need the economic recovery. They they kind of take off as the yields get steeper and and rate hikes start to come through. But but there is a danger, I think, that that doesn't happen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that this is all a bit more fragile than maybe we thought it was. And you don't get the inflationary impulse. And I think cool. that's going to put in, investors in a tricky place. I think. But I but I wonder if it's if it's you, you won't get the inflation, but you still get reflation, in which case. In theory, that could still be good for banks. You're not going to see the in- runaway inflation, super insanely higher prices that we are all kind of expecting, um, but you're still seeing some growth come in there, and then that would be kind of a happy place uh, for banks. Because one thing that I feel like banks are going to be immune to, which is what we're all kind of jazzed about, is they don't have the input cost pressure that most of the other sectors are going to have. They'll have maybe no. labor, like maybe, but we've already seen them raise like junior banker pay. Like it's not going to be a huge bite. Like I, I feel like it's labor and it's all the input costs, and they don't have that. So I think that that could be, we're not going to get that juicy stuff till later. No, that's certainly going to be something that's going to affect the other sectors, isn't it? So they will not have that. But the other sectors. I, I, I think this is going to be an incredible earnings season, and I also I almost kind of I'm almost at the point where I think numbers don't matter, mm-hmm. outlook does, totally. um, and that's where the real story is going to be this time round. Kind of what are they saying about labour? What are they saying about input costs? What are they saying about all of this coming through in terms of the outlook? I think I, the industrial companies in particular are going to be fascinating. The service company, mm-hmm. service sector companies as well, are going to be heavily affected by this. Can I pass? Can I pass this on? Uh, do I have pricing power? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what Bank of America's Savita Sumaranian uh, was to, had a note out, and she's like, "Look, th- this could be ugly earnings season for those that are exposed to the supply chain issues." But the same point, it's not the number right now; it's the guidance for 2022, and like that's where you could really see things getting hit because um, you have the higher commodity prices, you have the China issues, are we going to see slowing growth there, their growth impulse rolling over because they're shutting factories because it's too expensive, and climate issues, etc. And then you have the wage inflation. All of that is now a risk for 2022, which would make sense while you got a Jan Hatzius, and we'll talk about this later on in the hour, of Goldman Sachs sort of saying, I don't know if we're going to get a Fed rate hike in 2022 anymore. It's interesting because that, in some ways, this is this is kind of what is happening in the UK as well. But but the, the the Bank of England seems to have lurched suddenly in one direction in the way that the Fed simply hasn't. Yeah. The nope. Fed's waiting to see what the hell's going on, basically, here. The Bank of England seems to have made its mind up. Also, the sequencing is, is incredible. totally different. I mean, you're doing... Well, it, it wasn't, right, but, but now it is. is. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really surprising. Um, and... Guy's been trying to get people to say on TV and radio that... UK is going to enter a recession. No, I don't. I'm, I am genuinely really curious as to what people think. I think there's a real. Da- the UK is. I, I, I just kind of look around me and I'm and I'm really shocked as to what is happening here. You've got potential fiscal tightening. You've got potential monetary tightening. You've got a supply chain problem. You've got an energy problem. You've got a labour problem. I. This is not a great combination. I appreciate that people have money to spend and that may keep demand yeah. going. But there seems to be a lot so of headwinds. You're basically going to complain about this and the weather for the next like 18 months. But the so two are the two prepared. are related. It's true. If the weather's if the weather's good, then then a people will feel better, and and b will will have the wind to uh, to push us along very nicely. I'm looking forward um, to all of this. We'll see, but but the the combination looks really quite toxic right now. Womp, womp. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Something that we have surprisingly not talked about recently has been what's happening with the pandemic. That used to literally be our whole show for months. Um, And that seems to have sort of stepped to the wayside. And part of that is that you have some of these companies like AstraZeneca and Merck uh, coming up with what it looks like to be very good treatment for COVID-19. The latest is that Merck is seeking emergency use authorization here in the U.S. um, for a pill uh, that would be the first oral antiviral treatment uh, for COVID-19. So who do we turn to? Drew Armstrong, who leads health care coverage here in the U.S. Um, Drew, why isn't the market moving with these kind of headlines anymore? Like, what what do you make of that? You know, I think it's actually a pretty interesting and and new and exciting option here because, you know, a lot of these, um, the drugs that we've had so far, these antibody treatments are relatively complex to produce. You know, Mm -hmm. they're somewhat complex to administer because you have to, you know, have a nurse or a doctor do them. They're injected drugs. You know this this Merck uh, this Merck treatment. If it gets cleared for use by regulators, you know it's forty pills, which is kind of annoying over over five days. It's eight pills a day, but it's pills. I mean, you can mass manufacture these things quite easily, cheaply. They're storable. You know, just from a logistical standpoint, this this removes one more hurdle. And I, you know, I, I, maybe the reason the market's not moving is because hey, this is you know another piece. You know, but rather than kind of a, a, a game changer, I think it makes things. You know, easier and more helpful, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't totally change the landscape. Um, that said, it's still it's still potentially a very big deal here. In terms of how effective the impact it could have, a lot of people are worried about breakthrough infections. They're worried that they've been vaccinated and they get sick. Um, there are plenty of people that, that we all know that this is happening to. If you if you the, the combination of having been fully vaccinated and using these therapeutics, ha, I, what is the, what is the likely what's the prognosis? You know, of, I, of putting those two things together. Yeah, I, I think it's a good question, and just to stick as closely as we can to what we know about these um, th- this drug is that I, w- I would really break those into two separate components. You can certainly see a a use case for a therapy like this where. A person who has been vaccinated but has a variety of risk factors, you know, maybe they're particularly older or frail or have a lot of comorbidities, you know, they, they fit into the category of people, um, which is a very small and narrow one, to be clear, but who are who are vaccinated. But if they get infected, still have some some risk. This might be the kind of thing you could see being used for those people as a kind of just in case um, therapy. The folks who was tested in, you know, you're you're talking about basically higher risk COVID patients who have one, you know, one or more um, risk factors for COVID, you know, pre-existing condition or something like that, um, and you know, it showed that it cut their hospitalization rate by about fifty percent. And I think the interesting mm-hmm. thing is, you know, it. They had to stop the trial early because it was one of these things where the board monitoring it said, hey, this is showing us enough significant effectiveness here that we're not going to keep the trial going and keep giving people placebo because it would be unethical to do so. We have to give them the therapy. Now, we are going to get more data from this trial. They only showed us, I think, about half the patients, and and we know that there's more patients for whom there is data. So that's going to come in. We'll get more information. We'll learn a lot more as we we go through this. Um, Before I let you go, uh, this is totally self-serving, but where are we with the Moderna booster? Because for some people, a year is already up since when they got their first shot because Moderna was already what, what was approved before Pfizer. Where are we with that? 
you know, I think we're waiting to see exactly, you know, uh, how far out that's going to take. FDA is pretty stacked right now in terms of stuff they're considering. I mean, they've got shots for kids. Um, they've got, um, you know, I believe the the Moderna booster to consider. Um, they, you know, we'll probably be seeing rulings on these things coming in the next few weeks. Is my is my is my guess? So kind of work all nighters on. Like it kind of feels like this is the urgent stuff, but you know. Yeah, I mean, there's been anyway. a lot of turnover at FDA too. I mean, keep in sure. mind, like you know, you talk to you talk to people who know the agency, and they say, you know, you think you're exhausted. You know, talk to the people at FDA who've been dealing with this. All right, fine. I won't come too far on the FDA. Hey, Drew, thanks a lot. Really appreciate Drew Armstrong uh, joining us from Bloomberg. I think it's like a couple few weeks, uh, guy, until we get more data on the kids. If that's going to get an emergency authorization, that will be a good day for Alex Steele. It is. Uh, parents and kids seem to be the focus right now. This. Is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Tapering is very likely to be announced at the next meeting. That's going to take until the middle of 2022. And then I think the question is where is growth? Where is the labor market? Where is inflation? Under our forecast, growth is much more moderate. And inflation is on its way back down to something like 2% on core PCE. In that environment, I don't think they're going to move directly to rate hikes. That was Jan Hatzius, uh, chief economist over at Goldman Sachs, talking about the likelihood of rate hikes from the Fed, sort of warning that consumer spending and that boost that we're going to see is going to get pushed out uh, a little bit, downgrading its growth forecast uh, for this year. At the same time, you get David Kossin over at Goldman Sachs saying, buy the dip because inflation will be transitory. And then you have J.P. Morgan saying something very similar. Um, and you have to wonder what's going on here. I should point out that Morgan Stanley sticking by their call, though, of being a little bit more pessimistic in terms of uh, uh, where we are in the cycle, late cycle, higher inflationary pressures, etc. Uh, here to help us break it down is Kriti Gupta, Bloomberg TV markets reporter. First of all, this is your first day on TV, right? Like you're officially part of the TV family? It is my first day. Welcome. Yes. Welcome to the crazy. Thank you for the um, shout out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. So is the buy the dip thing still a Tina? If the Fed's pushed out, therefore liquidity remains, therefore just buy stocks? Uh, sort of. Half and half. Because I think that dynamic was there a lot stronger before, and it really comes down to, I think you hit it uh, perfectly when it comes to what is transitory, really. Because that seems to be kind of the, the coin flip that has banks and some of the major strategists saying, well, is this something to worry about or something to not worry about when you're talking about the commodity price? But if you actually quantify the numbers, we did it uh, months ago on the Markets Live team, but what is transitory? And for a lot of the historical analysis, transitory can mean as much as two years. So, how do you quantify kind of buying the dip when you do explain uh, kind of uh, expect excuse me higher inflation for potentially the next two years but then come out on the other side so that's mm-hmm. one argument uh, to really consider but I mean right now it really is all about energy and it's, what's interesting is that you can very easily blame it on the European energy crisis say it's natural gas it's the oil market but take a look at some of the other commodities that are trading in sympathy in addition to higher yields. There's a lot going on here that can't always be pinned to the European energy cycle. And I think that might be where a lot of strategists are kind of stumped. Well, how do you quantify that for a lot of corporate America to justify whether or not you buy the dip? And that's where this earnings season's guidance is really going to be crucial because we've been hearing about this for a while, these warnings that are coming, but we haven't actually quantified it yet. And that's where uh, this week, of course, and the coming weeks are going to be really Really crucial. How low is the bar going into earnings season? 
the bar is actually quite high. <laughs> the, the, okay. I would say I would say the the earnings beats that we had in the past uh, couple of quarters actually the earnings beats are quite high. So right now it kind of seems like although on the front you're saying a lot of people are expecting this kind of negative perhaps guidance. You had Bank of America coming out and saying that guidance would be actually pretty ugly going into this quarter. On the other hand, you have to compare it to kind of the beats that you've been seeing for the last couple of quarters. So you really have this mixed picture of where or what whether this is a good thing or a bad thing to beat earnings or to even meet them. But I think going by perhaps the last couple of quarters, I think the bar is quite high. And I think even just meeting those expectations are going to be challenging. I think it'll end up coming down to a sector basis. And that's something you're hearing from traders on the floor, that it really, the standards you have for, for tech, for example, which is getting hit really the most since the start of September, are going to become wildly different than, uh, say, our utilities or your real estate uh, earnings. Um. I also have to wonder, though, if we're underlooking. Is that, is that a word? If we're not looking closely. Who cares? At this point, you go along. Guy makes funny because I make up words, which is entirely true. Um, I wonder if we're underpricing, though, the demand part of it. Like, I understand that there's going to be some kind of problem with meeting that demand. So therefore, like factories like can't meet it, so their sales may not be as good, and there's the input cost. But the other end of it is that demand's so strong that it's going to outweigh any margin pressure. It is really strong, but then you have to also consider the fact of fiscal stimulus, because a lot of strategists had said that a lot of the fiscal stimulus impact would roll over by the end of September. So you are going to start to see that, I think, factor into a lot of the decisions when it comes to guidance, when it comes to what comes next, simply because for a lot of sectors, and I'm going to give airlines as kind of a case study here really quickly. For a lot of airlines, very relevant today with all the Southwest closures, but for airlines globally, you have had a lot of fiscal support hitting payrolls, hitting just, you know, not parking all of their all their planes, really influencing the cargo rates and things like that. Right now, though, when you start to see some of that fiscal help really diminish and then you say, well, let's look at the underlying fundamentals. Well, passenger rates aren't really coming back. And if you use that as kind of a proxy for consumer demand or consumer spending or simply disposable income broadly, the picture isn't as clear. So on the surface, sometimes a lot of these companies, I mean, let's broaden it out from airlines. Well, they're making their bottom line. They're still making those corporate profits. But a lot of this is coming from excess funds that were in consumer pockets. And then, of course, corporate profits as well, thanks to uh, government funding. And a lot of that is ending, uh, if it hasn't already ended, by the end of September. So the problem here is how much of that dependence is going to show up in earnings. Jan Hatzius said he thinks the Fed is going to announce the the taper at the next meeting. Does the market react react when a taper is announced, or does the market react when the taper is finished? Or has already reacted? Maybe. So many questions. Uh, I think the market reacts when the taper is announced. We are supposed to be a forward-looking mechanism, and that has what has happened previously. And I think the best, I mean, the case study that everyone goes by is the 2013 Bernanke testimony, right? That was the first announcement in May, May 22nd, I want to say, of 2013. Bernanke made quote-unquote announcement, if that's what you call it. But it was talked about in the months prior. So people saw it coming. It is being talked about similarly now people, meaning traders, meaning market participants, they are seeing it coming. And right now, the the I mean, if you look at the yield curve, for example, or those yield bets, the bet is on November. So I think right now, if you don't see it announced in November, which would be what uh, Jan Hatzius is saying, then that would actually be a positive reaction for the markets because there's so much emphasis on when that's going to happen. That So my, my argument is kind of what Alex said. I think it, a lot of it 
is sort of priced in, but there might be more on the announcement, less on the actual act. Cool. <laughs> Solid ending. Excellent. Solid. Right on. Yep. Well, congratulations on day one. I hope it continues to go well. Thank Thank you you for continuing to join us on radio. We greatly appreciate it. Um, That pretty much wraps things up. Uh, U.S. equity markets um, doing okay today. We're we're up. We're doing all right. Volume incredibly light. The FTSE finishing up in positive territory by seven-tenths of one percent. Cool. This is Bloomberg. Cool.